0: you've lived your life like a candle in the wind never fading with the sunset when the rain set in welcome to my class i'm will sloan and back in the saddle fan favorite luke savage here he is folks <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, it's uh, it's good to be back. I am in fact uh, alive and uh, I won't say I'm feeling 100%, but definitely feeling a lot better. Yeah, just had to be uh, put under for uh, for a few hours for a minor procedure on my nose, which uh, I didn't realize until a few days before the operation was basically gonna make me completely dysfunctional for 10 days or so after. So I'm feeling a lot closer to normal, not, not addled on painkillers, and not too addled on painkillers right now. So I think I should be able to do this. But I want to say a big thanks to uh, Ashley McCray of Current Affairs, uh, to Jack Frayne Reed of the Real Politic Podcast, and uh, also, of course, to a gentleman scholar and uh, longtime friend of the show, Alex Ross, for filling in for me uh, during my absence. I was thinking about it and I realized that absent kind of bonus content, like when you interviewed Jonathan Rosenbaum, and there was one episode last year where I was in the States besides those I, I couldn't really think of any instances where I've taken a step back from the show or not been on an episode you know since we started it in whatever month of 2016 that was I mean is it was it April May June I can't remember when I what what month it was when I got that fateful message from my longtime friend will Sloan that said something like, Fuck it, let's do a Michael Moore podcast, which was an idea. I think those were the exact words. Yes, we toyed around with uh, for a bit, but uh, but anyway, like I said, I don't think I'd taken a step back from the show uh, like this. So it was uh, very uh, very gratifying to know that we have so many friends of the pod who were able to conscript on such uh, short notice when one of the hosts is uh, is down and out. So thanks everyone, and I don't know, maybe the maybe the listeners were, were happy for some uh, respite from my uh, from my cerebral. Uh, socialist bullshit for a while. I don't know. Well,
0: I'm sorry that you were in so much pain, but we had a great time here at Michael and SHQ. HQ. It's a bit like when you were a kid, your parents ever left you at home for a few hours and you could just like jump on the bed. You could eat whatever you wanted. Maybe they left you some money to order some pizza. Felt kind of like that, you know? <laughs> I mean, we would have loved to have you here to watch the uh, 130-minute channel awesome film, <laughs> Suburban Nights. You mean you mean what um, you're
1: saying is uh, you were finally free to turn, uh, turn the podcast into the film and trash podcast that it that it you know would be without my presence here
0: it's a bit like you know when Lennon and McCartney broke up and you start to see like who they really are that, I think that's kind of what that's right right I become the
1: you know I become a kind of uh you know populist uh secular saint who is uh under constant scrutiny by the u.s government and you write uh fluffy fluffy you know
0: churning out hits one after another one great song that everyone loves one iconic band on the run level smash after another yeah
1: silly love songs you know uh live and let (laughs) die just all 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 bangers in addition to us having not recorded for, uh, I don't know, two weeks or nearly two weeks, I haven't really spoken to you. I mean, we've kind of been, you know, DM stuff to each other, but this is the first time we've actually spoken. And in the DMs, you know, it's been uh, it's been mostly uh, mostly business. So uh, I don't know. What, what have you been up to, Will? What's been happening?
0: Oh, God. I mean, rotting away in my apartment. You know, my partner and I last night went and had a drink on a patio, which is the first time since well, the whole duration of this pandemic that we've done such a thing. And it was just an incredible experience. Like, it felt like there's a weird vertigo quality to it of, like, leaving the house dressed slightly nicer than we have (laughs) in, like, a year, leaving the dog in his kennel, and then walking somewhere. That felt insane. And then sitting on a table in a mostly empty patio, having a beer served to us, and then, like, just having a focused conversation. (laughs) in a setting that is designed for you to just have a conversation. <laughs> Honestly, it was it was so fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I think you've probably spent more time on patios than I have lately, but it made me realize, like, I really have missed this. I really have missed having an evening activity.
1: Yeah, I, I can't. I actually can't remember the last time uh, I did that. But it's funny. I thought you were going to say, and I'm, I'm relieved that you didn't say uh, oh yeah, we went to a patio and it actually wasn't that great, or or something like that. I thought you were gonna have a contrarian take on the on the patios.
0: Sitting there uh, having our first conversation in over a year, we realized <laughs> that uh, actually there, w- there was nothing left, and we decided to call it all yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, it's just the
1: montage in Citizen Kane as uh, you know as their yeah. as their marriage deteriorates.
0: I'm looking forward to more of that. Although I did see uh, inklings that Doug Ford may or may not declare another lockdown the- oh
1: yeah I don't know if uh, I don't know if, if listeners uh, further afield have uh, have experienced this uh, this same thing wherever they are but our idiot right-wing premier Doug Ford uh, has this habit of you know when he's going to make an announcement uh, about a lockdown or or about you know new measures usually kind of restrictive measures that are usually overdue but also are very uh, kind of unpleasant and uh, you know might not be necessary if the government had acted you know more decisively and coherently earlier but he has this habit of kind of teeing up these announcements like as if we all just can't wait as if it's some kind of infotainment news event so he'll say like hang tight folks we just had a cabinet meeting and all the details will be revealed tomorrow it's like he's announcing a new funko pop yeah like gabbo is coming Yeah. When I asked you how you were, I was kind of hoping you'd interpret the question a little bit differently. I mean, of course, I'm also glad to hear literally, uh, you know, how you were. And uh, I'm glad to know that patios haven't been ruined. But usually when I ask you that question, you do one of two things. Uh, you talk about uh, award season, which somehow on the show, there's there's always an award season, it seems like. We're always in the midst of an award season. And the, and the other thing you do is talk about things that you watched, which obviously you've been watching a lot uh, during the pandemic. But since we hadn't had one of those conversations recently, Uh, I'm talking about the second thing, not the first thing. I don't care about awards season. What have you been screening lately?
0: Well, just a few days ago, I watched a movie called Godzilla 2000, which I saw theatrically in the year 2000. It was a Japanese Godzilla movie. And revisiting Godzilla 2000 filled me with positive vibes because, you know, it was a man in suit Godzilla movie that had some early digital effects even so it was like an a-level japanese production so the godzilla suit was so beautiful it was so textured so detailed uh, also so tactile it it looked rubbery you just wanted to kind of put your hand out and just feel it Uh, uh but it also you know looked like a man in a suit and all the scenes where godzilla is traipsing on the model tokyo the model city was so beautiful as well, so intricate, so detailed, and it was lit so remarkably with such atmosphere. And of course, you know, whenever Godzilla knocks into a building, it like falls apart because it's just like an empty box, right? <laughs> like it's, it's incredibly detailed on the outside. Not so much on the inside, but all of that gives it a weird otherworldly quality. Like it's so intricate, and the movie believes it so much that you kind of start believing it after a while too. There was great junky beauty there. Well,
1: you're really, you're really selling me on it. Um, on your recommendation, uh, my girlfriend and I a while ago tried to watch Shin Godzilla, which definitely intrigues me with its premise. You know, it's all it's all about how bureaucracy navigates a national crisis. And I mean, the version we had, I, I think. You know, she didn't like the look of Godzilla, which... Is a big attraction of, of kind of the new Hollywood Godzillas uh, to her because I mean he does look pretty awesome and actually incidentally I'm really looking forward to seeing the uh, Godzilla versus Kong uh, that's going to be fun.
0: Can I ask you how does she feel about the man in suit? Like she likes
1: that, right? I don't I don't think so. I think she likes Godzilla oh, big and she likes you know uh, half a billion dollars behind the film or uh, or forget about it. We we will have to do the weird '90s uh, Matthew Broderick Godzilla uh, at some point. Because uh, in addition to being yet another kind of weirdo 1990s end of history movie, it also to me is just fascinating in the way that every failed blockbuster is fascinating. It is such (laughs) a bad movie. And I, I will never stop being intrigued by the idea of, you know, something that has that many people involved, so many resources, so much money behind it. And yet, you know, the end result is so, so bad. But just to finish on Shin Godzilla, uh, I think maybe the problem was that the subtitle file we got was one of those ones that uh, sort of came off like it had been through Google Translate. So you're kind of having to translate oh, yeah. like the, the subtitles as you're reading them because there's there's just something kind of uncanny about them. Might have to try that one again at some point.
0: Godzilla's been on my mind a bit because I read this review. I want to introduce a character into the Michael and us cosmos. Uh, This is on the culture and pop culture side of the Michael and us cosmos (laughs) rather than the politics (laughs) side. I want to briefly introduce a character who reigned supreme on the internet in the 90s. He was the proprietor of a website that for a long time bore the slogan, the largest non-commercial movie site on the web. <laughs> that's, that's funny. I mean, we're the largest non-commercial podcast on the web. Supposedly at his peak, he would get 150,000 hits a day. And that's because he was always the number two external review on the internet movie database for every movie. And the reason for that was because he got an endorsement from Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert called him the best of the web-based critics, and his name is James Berardinelli, and he has a site called realviews.net, and he was so visible in the 90s, and this week I've just kind of like fallen into a rabbit hole of revisiting him, because he's kind of like, if Roger Ebert was not smart and was a bad writer,
1: (laughs) he would be James Berardinelli. (laughs) Isn't that just like the majority of film critics
0: So I' I'm, I'm, I'm gonna build to a larger <laughs> point in a second but I just went over to his website because I, I do that every six months or so because there was a time in the 90s when the idea of a web-based critic of any of any art form was a novelty. <laughs> Like, you're telling me somebody is doing this, but not in a newspaper? They're,
1: they're doing it on the World Wide Web. They're doing it online, with a with a hyphen between the on and the line. So,
0: in preparation for the new Godzilla versus Kong, he had a review of the original King Kong versus Godzilla. And he has a paragraph in here where he says, Two versions of King Kong versus Godzilla exist, and, if you're serious about getting maximum enjoyment out of the production... The English-language-slash-international version is unquestionably the one to see. The Japanese release takes itself almost seriously, making an attempt to create characters and build relationships among the human beings. While those might be important considerations for something made by Ozu or Kurosawa, it's just about the least important thing in a monster movie. The English-language edition turns the humans into mannequins, mumbling inane corny dialogue emphasis on corn, And adds all sorts of idiocy, featuring a news anchor named Eric Carter. If you're not watching the version of King Kong vs. Godzilla featuring Carter, you're not getting the full experience. Turn it off and find the other one. You'll thank me later when you're rolling around the floor laughing uncontrollably. So I'm reading this because I found it fascinating, because the Western understanding of, let's say, uh, foreign or especially Eastern genre filmmaking over the last 20 years or so has expanded. Uh, The critical discourse around films like this has gotten richer and more informed, to the point where, say, the Criterion Collection can release a box set of the first 15 Godzilla movies and everyone's happy. Everyone loves it. (laughs) People in the West, they're not watching these movies in edited pan and scan cropped versions and they can see the artistry. They can see how beautiful the cinematography is. They can see the particular artistry involved in the special effects that were once considered cheesy. I loved looking at Berardinelli's review because it's so... Old school, it's so dismissive and it's so kind of casually racist. The fact where it's like, well, you know, it's not um, um, Google's Japanese filmmakers,
1: Ozu or Kurosawa. Right, those two being the only two Japanese filmmakers uh, since the 1940s.
0: And in fact, the director of this film, King Kong vs. Godzilla, is Shiro Honda, a close friend of Kurosawa's, in fact, the assistant director on Ran and Kagamusha. You know somebody who Kurosawa himself respected very greatly. Uh, although Bernard Nelly doesn't know this, you know just the kind of lack of curiosity of what a movie like this meant, what the what the context it emerged from might have been, what what audience it might have served, and the eagerness to tell people, don't look at the original, look at the butchered uh, American boulderized version because this isn't worth
1: taking seriously anyway. Well that that sounds like a very typical sort of uh, a chauvinism very particular in uh, you know to the 1990s, right? Like I mean, how how can I say this without using the phrase end of history yet again? But I mean just uh, that sort of post 1989 sense that, you know, liberal democratic capitalism of a specifically American variety is both the best and the only thing left. And you know, this was the climate that gave us, you know, phrases like Bill Clinton We're going for full spectrum dominance and stuff like that. Um, I think that same kind of ethos very much applied in the realm of culture as well. And, you know, it's obviously a pretty uh, chauvinistic one.
0: And I was thinking, in what universe could Berardinelli be the most acclaimed, the most popular online critic? And it could only be a universe in which online was not taken seriously as a distinct form in itself. Because what he is is a slavish imitation of what an average middle-brow newspaper critic of the time would have been, but not quite as good like his prose is is a little less good than a, a typical 90s newspaper critic because online is less good than print is.
1: Well, this is the era when all the all the terminology people used to refer to the internet had this kind of weirdly analog quality. Like do you remember how all the terms for the early internet were so kind of like tactile like my mom literally explaining what the internet was to me was her like holding a a cursor over like a part that you click and describing like what she called it a hot spot it's always been very funny to me that the all the language of the early internet all the kind of terminology used to describe it are you know the conception of what links were like people were thinking like chain links like they were it was it had a much more kind of physical kind of connotation or a kind of material connotation to it it's funny to me that the early internet which was obviously so much more primitive than the internet of the present day also had this kind of i don't know primitive lexicon that we use to describe it so he's a he's a guy from that era and he's still
0: plugging away like one of those Japanese soldiers who never heard that the war ended or <laughs> like at the end of Silent Running when Bruce Dern has died but the two robots on the ship are still watering the garden and it's just floating off.
1: No, I'm, I'm just thinking because of that uh, passage you read about what it, what it would be like if you mashed together an Ozu movie and a Godzilla film.
0: I think it might go <laughs> a little something like this. <laughs> okay, but how would it go? <laughs> I got it, I got it. Uh, Godzilla's son Minya returns from from college back to Monster Island, and finds old Godzilla uh, wanting more of his company than he's able to give because Minya has started his own family now, uh, and and unfortunately Minya is due back in uh, Osaka. He's
1: busy in uh, in Tokyo, where he's found a new occupation smashing things down.
0: Yes, and you know that it was once Godzilla's time to smash buildings down, but unfortunately life must go on, you know. And there's something bittersweet about that, but there's also something beautiful about
1: that. <laughs> Godzilla. Has- He has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force. While Kong is a thinking animal.
0: His brain is considerably larger. About ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals... There is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy
1: one another. Well, just before uh, I went in for surgery, uh, I finished watching The Crown. Uh, Have you seen The Crown, Will? I saw one episode. I saw that
0: one with the guy who uh, breaks into Buckingham Palace. And the Queen is very nice to him. (laughs) Uh, Much much nicer than she was in real life, apparently.
1: So, I've been wanting to talk about Netflix's The Crown on the show for a while because initially, anyway, it did seem like the perfect way to, you know, perfect excuse to talk about the British monarchy and why it's good, obviously, why it's extremely good and cool. But I, as I uh, worked my way through the show, I actually kind of struggled with that. The main reason for that being, I think, I mean, so if people have seen The Crown, I mean, I would say it's it's very solid middle brow entertainment. It's got some great performances, but its politics are, uh, I found, extremely kaleidoscopic. I think uh, generally speaking, that's the case, but especially c- kaleidoscopic and kind of inscrutable Uh, For me, because obviously when I'm watching, I have such a visceral hostility to the institution that's being represented, um, which I think really refracts kind of how I process a lot of the plots on it and stuff. The thing for me is, you know, watching this show, which has so many real, depicts so many real episodes from British history that I'm so familiar with, you know, but it depicts them from kind of, from the point of view of like, like I, I have, I identify with all these events from the point of view of like the people who are working to kind of undo the monarchy or, or, or to undo the order that it represents and, and kind of embodies. But even all of that aside, I genuinely do not know how we are meant to take the show or what any of it is supposed to mean. If you watch the theme sequence, it's got this kind of very downbeat kind of score over it. But it's got a series of images that I guess are kind of meant to symbolize how the monarchy is something kind of both opulent and also eternal. I mean, it certainly sets up the show as something which on balance, is sort of pro the institution. And yet, you know, some of the plots on the show, uh, some of the individual episodes uh, are just so weird. I find it all very difficult to square. I mean, if you just take at face value uh, so many of the things the show presents you with, it's all just so uh, so very odd. I mean, so you know, there's an episode, for example, where the show recreates this this horrific mining disaster that happened in Aberfan, which is a village in Wales. Uh, I guess in the in the early 1960s, perhaps in mid 1960s. You know, it's, and it's awful. You know, this coal face had been uh, you know over excavated and it collapsed, and it ran directly over a school. The landslide ran directly over a school, killed all these school children. Absolutely horrific. And yet the dramatic stakes in this episode are whether the queen is willing to, I guess, sully herself by kind of visiting the town to kind of emotionally sympathize. You know, it's this big national trauma, and obviously this, uh, this horrific trauma for the people in Aberfan. Her development over the episode, her arc, is, is learning to to understand that she uh, she is expected to go there and sort of cry for the cameras. And this is kind of like her personal growth. Like, those are the dramatic stakes in the episode. And you know, I'm watching and I'm just thinking, like, how can anybody possibly watch this and give a shit about the Queen's personal growth? Here you have these people. They represent the class that gave the world the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> Okay. And they live in this economically downtrodden town whose primary industry has improper safety standards. And we're supposed to give a shit whether the queen visits or not. Like it's it's obscene. And I don't know how you can watch the episode and think anything, uh, you know, think anything besides that.
0: But wait, I actually do want to like pause on that. Why do you think? people would be interested in her and sympathize with that journey of personal growth? Because apparently a lot of people do. Well, obviously, she represents something greater than herself. Is it because she represents Britain itself? Or she represents um, something maternal? It's like if mom went to a mining village and became a somewhat better person?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I think in in real life, that's how people would. uh, And that's that is what I don't know, royal apologists, royal sycophants, royal fans would would say. But I mean, that in many ways is the paradox of the show, right? Uh, The queen doesn't want to visit initially because she feels that it will actually kind of undermine the institution if she's sort of getting involved in these things, right? Because she has to be above everything. She has to be above kind of mere, you know, temporal matters like uh, school children dying in a horrific uh, mining disaster. And actually, so many of the plots on the show uh, concern, you know, like things like, you know, there's an episode where the, you know, central conflict is, is the monarchy gonna, you know, modernize by... um, you know, having the Queen's speech be be on TV and you know initially the feeling is that it's kind of vulgar and base for you to actually see the queen because you know you're supposed to listen to the queen's speech or i guess before that uh, read it in the newspaper or something like that or you know i think there's a, an almost identical plot when in, in an early episode when Philip and Elizabeth get married and you know it's a question of you know are they going to broadcast this thing in Westminster Abbey what what's the camera or from Westminster Abbey what's the camera placement going to be like is it going to be done as this whole big kind of spectacle with different Angles Is one camera too much, you know, and these are the conflicts being discussed kind of within the the universe of the crown. But I mean, the universe itself is showing you the inside of the royal family. And so the, the result is inevitably completely absurd. Once you start thinking of these people, once you start seeing them as anything other than regal, as kind of actual people, like which of course they are, you know, the entire premise of the monarchy, this sort of, you know, fictive transcendence of the whole thing just collapses. And yet the show is supposedly, you know, one of its kind of main narrative engines is like, how can the monarchy kind of modernize while retaining this kind of transcendent sense of itself or, or whatever?
0: We were talking about Ozu a few minutes ago and, you know, a recurring theme in his movies is the march of progress quote unquote progress and how it can be an ambiguous thing you know you see these very traditional Japanese villages that all of a sudden get skyscrapers and all of a sudden get TVs and vulgar American influenced culture and that sort of thing and you see the characters trying to navigate their ambivalent feelings about that and it seems like the crown actually is doing something similar to that in a (laughs) weird way and yet the conduit through which to explore those ambiguous feelings are the royals (laughs) (laughs) well
1: I have a theory about this type of drama, which I feel like is very common on British TV. Have you ever seen Downton Abbey?
0: Uh, no, I've not seen one second of
1: it. Okay, so you know, I haven't fully developed this, but I think you could call something like Downton Abbey or The Crown, you know, they're examples of Tory drama. And I don't mean that in just the literal sense that they take place in a sort of small C conservative milieu. Uh, I mean it in the sense that they have a sort of small C conservative kind of Tory idea, a Burkean idea, I guess in a certain sense of what progress is. So as I said, you know, the, the you know kind of main narrative engine The Crown is how can you preserve this thing uh, well, also kind of modernizing it. So you know, the 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 monarchy. You know, is it going to debase itself by having the queen, uh, you know, appear on TV when she gives her you know annual national address or whatever? Turns out usually that her appearing on TV, you know, actually uh, this helps this helps preserve the monarchy. You know, it's it's modernizing it or or whatever. You know, in a lot of the plots surrounding uh, Princess Diana in seasons three and four, you know, I feel like Diana is kind of also represented as a you know a modernizing figure, Princess margaret as well at various points is is represented like that so you know what you basically have is the march of progress of a kind the linear movement of history society changing but it's all through the lens of this particular institution you know it's all about whether this inherently conservative institution like the extent and the nature of of, that it undergoes change rather than society as a whole so you know does it welcome outsiders what are its attitudes towards you know britain becoming more diverse What are its attitudes towards a a woman becoming prime minister? You know, Margaret Thatcher obviously features as a character. What are its attitudes to having a a labor government? Things like that. But it's all through the lens of this inherently conservative institution. I think Downton Abbey is a better example of what I'm talking about. I've always found it. Politically, a, a very strange show because in exactly the same way, it's about this conservative institution, this landed, this family on a landed estate, retaining its sense of aristocracy, but kind of evolving with events. Now that sounds like a kind of small p progressive narrative arc for for a show, but practically speaking, what it means is that all of the sort of progressive characters who are represented, uh, you know, whether they're suffragette, there's a cab driver, a kind of Irish Republican cab driver who reads Karl Marx and John Stuart Mill these kind of characters end up functioning as almost the antagonists of the show, or at least the sources of narrative tension. You know, and in the case of the the, the cab driver, you know, his arc is that he just kind of marries into the family. There's another character, uh, you know, I've spent years since I've seen this, so I'm forgetting the names. There's another character who's from some kind of bourgeois background. He understands money, and he helps the Granthams who are actually suffering. You know, they're suffering financially because the patriarch is too ham-fisted uh, with money. So they need bourgeois competence to help them navigate this but again you know the the show is not about you know the bourgeoisie supplanting the aristocracy or you know let alone the aristocracy being reined in by working class or democratic forces or anything like that it's just all about how the aristocracy kind of navigates and accommodates itself to those things it is kind of Tory drama in a in a very real sense i I, d- I just want to go through a couple more episodes though of, of the crown that I think are funny whether or not they they relate to this thesis I'm developing there's a, there's another episode that's set in Wales Uh, And again, this show is just so strange. And again, this is just another example of, of how uh, politically strange the show is. So the plot of this one is that Prince Charles, who's going to be the Prince of Wales, he's got to go to Wales, got to actually visit there if he's going to be the prince. And, you know, he definitely doesn't want to be there. Got to have this uh, tutor to teach him a few lines of Welsh, basically, so that he can give this uh, address as he's kind of announced as the Prince of Wales. Uh, and of course, there's like a lot of Welsh nationalism there. The tutor himself is a Welsh nationalist, a keen Welsh nationalist. But, you know, he comes to like Charles at the end of the episode. Charles, you know, kind of defies his family by giving this speech in Welsh, which kind of has these, you know, I don't know, vaguely sympathetic, which, you know, has these kind of vaguely pro Welsh sentiments in it. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching all this and just my sympathy the entire time is just with the most like ardent Welsh nationalists in it. And yet the way the episode represents the conflict between Welsh nationalism and and the British monarchy is just by, you know, Charles like learns a few lines of Welsh and befriends this Welsh nationalist tutor Who's just like, yeah, he's a nice kid, whatever. I guess we don't need our own country. (laughs) Again, I don't know how you can watch that and not think it's uh, uh, supremely weird. You know, there's another episode where uh, Margaret Thatcher's son goes missing because he has some weird hobby where he just like drives a race car across the desert and he gets lost. And she responds by going to war with Argentina. And it's like, are we supposed to, (laughs) are we supposed to think that's good? I don't get it you know charles's uncle and mentor lord mountbatten literally plans a military coup this really happened uh, against the labor government he's uh, you know was going to be the head of some kind of military junta that was going to lock up the labor cabinet um and i don't know declare some kind of absolute monarchy or, or something like that and after the, the coup plot doesn't work out uh, after the queen kind of learns about it and is like you know very naughty don't do that put the coup away mountbatten just goes back to being charles's kind of slightly adorable uncle and he's just like in future episodes it's like i don't know how you can see the initial arc and not think his kind of future appearances are are not incredibly strange I'm not sure how to interpret all this. It could just be that in the era of Netflix, when these you know incredibly airbrushed and very well-funded shows are being made with these lavish budgets, but also being done via algorithm. you know, Netflix, as we've talked about, has all these complicated analytics it uses to figure out kind of what people want. And maybe that this is just what happens when you design a show by committee. Like it's both pro-monarchy and also a documentary about how the monarchy is absurd and bad. Uh, I don't know. And that's how she will stay, how she will remain. One friend of mine said, How many people watched that funeral then? And I said, 25 million in this country. And he said, Well, that means half the country wasn't watching. What the hell are you doing getting so worked up about it? No! No, no! No, no! Most of people weren't in the mail and were really not that affected by it. The Princess of Wales we never really thought that much of her. Slightly screwy, loopy, odd figure. I quite see why we had to venerate her. Now she's dead. She was a shining spirit who will never be forgotten.
0: The orgy of sentimentality was nauseating to behold. A complete suspension of reality by the British people. She became a sort of Christ-like figure. Is that you
1: this I certainly didn't grieve about Diana's death. How can you grieve somebody that you've never met, that you don't know? It's presumptuous, and it is, I think, offensive. She will always be in our thoughts and forever in our hearts. It's like Disney makes the black shirts. You must cry.
0: Speaking of the monarchy being absurd and bad, we did actually watch a thing for this episode, and it involves two beloved British institutions, uh, the British monarchy and Michael and us returning champion, Christopher Hitchens. It is a 50 minute long, made for TV documentary from 1998 called Diana the Morning After. That's M O U R. This was Christopher Hitchens' dissenting take on the Diana phenomenon which aired not long after her death. And it's a scattershot, but pretty enjoyable documentary. Its main agenda is to ask why, in the week or two following Diana's death, there seemed to be a media chill on anything but adulatory coverage of her. Dissenting views were not allowed in the British media, and more than that, indifference was not allowed to be expressed. Uh, Anything that suggested that she was anything other than a saint was not allowed. So Hitchens goes around, around the UK, interviews a number of columnists, both liberal and conservative, talks to a comedian who says that comedians received censorship from club owners. They weren't allowed to make jokes about Diana. And uh, Hitchens offers some of his own acerbic observations about Diana and the family that she left, as well as the British public itself, including those many people who sent bouquets and camped out outside Buckingham Palace.
1: Yeah, this one's on YouTube, so you can actually uh, watch it. And if you like Christopher Hitchens, you know, if you like sort of good era Christopher Hitchens, it's, uh, it's certainly a lot of fun. It also includes some very emblematic Christopher Hitchens flourishes. So right at the beginning, you know, he's talking about how you know a, a year earlier, you know, Diana died in Paris, and he says, "You know, seat of the f- world's first modern republic." He's you know saying this quite gleefully in his very Christopher Hitchens way. See the world's first modern republic, where Princess Diana was cruelly and abruptly translated from the banal to the sublime, having been <laughs> having been putting on the Ritz with her jet set Playboy escort. She got in a car with a hyped-up driver. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, describes her death as uh, wasteful and pointless, but also uh, meaningless. And he says superficially... The tragedy belongs to the realm of kitsch iconography, like the famous memorial to Jim Morris in a near, in a nearby Paris cemetery. Lives that are cut off too soon, like those of James Dean and, or JFK, make good iconic material because they can be mourned for what they never became to say nothing of what they never were. Uh, and this is really a big part of the thesis of the documentary. Uh, Christopher Hitchens talks to a number of people, some of them you know, pro-royal, some of them anti-royal, some of them just plain ambivalent to the whole thing and his take on this kind of media circus that followed in the wake of Princess Diana's death is really that it was just kind of false consciousness it was manufactured consent and he does provide you know uh, some very strong anecdotal evidence for this but also some very good data points to the fact while also very strongly critiquing some of the more absurd things that happened so it is a scattershot documentary but also i think a fairly coherent one and and you know makes the anti monarchist case in a way that's both uh, quite entertaining and quite effective some of the
0: points he makes are that of tv sets in britain 40 percent were not turned on during
1: the time slot yeah and what percentage of the other ones were watching eastenders you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: he talks about the in his view disproportionate attention that diana received in the british press for example contrasting her death with the death of 400 haitians that received very minor coverage he talks about this being fueled by celebrity culture and and by people being just attracted to events and mass spectacles, he talks about how funny it was that people kept sending bouquets to Buckingham Palace, given that Buckingham Palace, you know, did what it could to make a pretty clean break of her. Yeah, that, uh,
1: yeah. When he, I like that scene early on. One of the first people he visits is this, uh, I don't know, pretty obscene royal hobbyist. I mean, I guess he gives her the dignity of calling her a royalist. But I mean, this is literally just like somebody who seems to have like a nerd hobby and has converted large parts of their house into kind of shrines to uh, the House of Windsor. As he's knocking at her door, he he describes her as someone who, unlike Diana, likes Prince Charles, and unlike Charles, likes Diana. And yeah, he goes into the room in her house where you know she like has something like it's you know a piece of carpet or something that Diana once walked over. Uh, there are all these kind of gaudy plates. There's a a really hideous piece of stained glass that kind of looks nothing like her that she's had made or or acquired from somewhere. And you know one of his uh, kind of meta themes is that a lot of the grief and kind of the fandom around this event, it's not uniform and a lot of it's pretty inconsistent or incoherent. So, you know, how can this person, for example, this particular character, both reveres Diana and also reveres Charles? How could people be sending flowers to Buckingham Palace constantly where she spent no time and in which institutionally had broken off from her entirely? He kind of has a taxonomy of, of different types of mourning. You know, he says there were those people who happened to be there. Um, you know, so in some cases, tourists who literally had not really thought about Princess Diana before this, but then this was the thing that was happening where they were, so they got on board. You know, there were those who felt that it gave them permission to grieve through the event. Like, just the fact that people were sad, let them grieve about something. There's one
0: woman that he talks to whose parents died in an auto accident, who talks about feeling some sympathy for Diana just because of that.
1: That's right, although she also seems a little bit bem- Amused because you know she is somebody who has actually suffered a loss and of course so many of these people the vast majority of them who are mourning are mourning a person that they've they've never met and have only and have only ever kind of consumed through the kind of filter of entertainment media and 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 the national press and things like that
0: Hitchens also has a bit of a go at her charity work pointing out for example that uh, Jody Williams received a Nobel Prize for landmine eradication but lives in obscurity whereas everybody knows that Diana spent a few days in Bosnia
1: right that seems great because uh, he begins it with this monologue where it just sounds like somebody describing Princess Diana you know it's this young charismatic woman very photogenic very talented very compassionate and then yeah of course he's talking about this landmine activist uh, who absolutely nobody has ever heard of although as yeah he points out but what everybody knows is that Diana Spencer visited Bosnia and Herzegovina for a few days in the 1990s or something like that
0: he talks to a comedian who says that the joke that he got in trouble for at the clubs was if you're a millionaire with nothing to do all day you may eventually say fuck it I'll go touch a leper because what else do you have to do? And, uh, you know, it's a good photo op.
1: Hitchens does kind of tie Diana to the culture where, you know, as he says, every celebrity needs a charity because in the kind of neoliberal world, compassion has been has been privatized. So it's now itself a property. Rich people sort of get to own uh, the, the biggest share of it. That comedian has a great line where he he, he compares the uh, kind of outpouring, you know, he's he calls it uh, Disney meets the black shirts, you know, uh, where it's it's this thing that's both cloyingly sentimental, but also subtly authoritarian. Uh, you must cry. That scene with the comedian, I think, is one example where you know, there's a few, a few cases where I think this documentary steps into the realm of, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it's ex- excessively cruel. The comedian uh, has a go at Princess Diana's eating disorder, which I definitely don't think is funny. I think Christopher Hitchens, who I broadly agree with here, might have done a little more work to kind of recognize why people found Diana's charity uh, maybe more sympathetic than some of the other charity people do. I mean, I don't know if he mentions, I could be wrong, but does he mention her visit to that hospital in New York City where she hugged people with HIV? I mean, I think that was... It was a powerful
0: symbolic gesture, to be sure. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, she was on a sponsored visit to New York, but it certainly had a, a real symbolic power at the time.
0: He also takes some, I think, kind of petty swipes at her love life, talking about how she was with this kind of like nouveau riche jet setter type, implying that there's something day class A about that. And in fact, one of the interviewees kind of accuses him of mild xenophobia
1: of saying that about the guy. I suppose Christopher Hitchens would defend a lot of this on the grounds that this sort of polemicism. It's all about breaking taboos, and the, the problem, I think, for him is if you start qualifying your statements about the monarchy like very quickly, you're not going to be really saying anything critical of it at all. I'm not sure how I reconcile that, which I also kind of broadly agree with with everything else I just said, but there you go. But just quickly, there's a few more characters who are worthy of uh, mention, a few more people who he meets. There's the Private Eye editor, editor of the uh, Iconoclastic and, uh, and often fun, though I don't know where it's where it's at these days, uh, magazine Private Eye, who talks about the, the magazine being quite literally taken off the stands in, in the week after Diana died, I guess. Well, the
0: pretense that they used was apparently you're not allowed to depict or I guess even reference the crash on the front page of a paper. They had on the front page of theirs this like shot of all the mourners outside of Buckingham Palace and speech bubbles coming from them and one of them references the crash and this was the th- the thin pretense. They did
1: not even depict the crash. It is merely alluded to. That was considered beyond the pale. There's the guy, I can't remember who it is. It might be uh, it might be one of the Tory magazine columnists he's talking to, uh, who points out, or maybe it's the comedian, I can't remember, who just goes through the lyrics to Candle in the Wind and points out that they don't actually make any sense. That was the uh, private eye editor. Right, right. right. It, it doesn't make any sense. Seriously, read the lyrics to Candle in the Wind, and there's a whole lot of mixed metaphors in there. <laughs> uh, I'm starting to think that that's... That uh, song that David Brent wrote that we hear a few bars of might actually be better on the charity point. Another thing Hitchens uh, points out I don't know whether this is true I assume it is. He he mentions that Diana didn't leave anything to charity in her will. She merely distributed her vast wealth among you know some of Britain's richest families. With which I suppose if true is pretty as uh, pretty scandalous. Um, well, thank God she did so that now Harry can land on his feet <laughs> in the United States. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> the the last characters I wanted to talk about is this uh this couple in northamptonshire who get intruded upon because i guess she spent some time there as a young girl that sounds like not very much and this space i mean this i thought was absolutely remarkable you know just as part of the british countryside it's just overnight like turned into this like horribly kitschy tourist site because i guess people think there's some kind of like transference like if you go there like you're breathing in the air that diana once breathed in i mean this this i thought was maybe the most powerful kind of segment in the film just in making the point that people really are engaging in a kind of false consciousness like visiting somewhere that diana has some kind of tangential connection to and the whole thing is just turned into i mean you used the word day class a before in a different context but i think that might apply here this part of the British countryside that is turned into this, this space that's supposed to be sacred, but it's all actually very profane. Um, someone uses the phrase like Diana commemorative season. I mean, there are literally people like, like American tourists flying in and driving here straight from the airport just to kind of get a whiff of the air and take photos of the gates to one of these like country estates. It is incredibly kitschy and it has nothing of the sort of regal stardust or splendor that people seem to be uh, ascribing to it. And this is where, you know, I think for Christopher Hitchens, and you know, he does make the point pretty forcefully, there is something a little bit fascistic about all of this. You know, just about people being instructed by all of these institutions in British society, both the the democratic and the non-democratic institutions. Of course, the whole thing was a big, you know, coup for Tony Blair, who, as Hitchens says, used the occasion to baptize his ministry, which is, you know, another emblematically great Hitchens turn of phrase. You know, but so you know, you have the you have the the newly elected, newly Labor government is doing this you have all of the press seemingly all of the media there's a part where he talks about how call-in shows you know they were screening out anybody who expressed even ambivalence let alone hostility or, or or a dissenting opinion to what was going on there's one lady he plays whose call gets through and she's just saying like Look, I don't care about this. I just want to watch EastEnders. Why are all the TV stations changed to, or maybe it's Coronation Street. No, why are all the TV sh- stations changed to uh, change the funeral? Like, what if I want to watch something else?
0: It's funny to imagine that happening now because you would see dissenting takes because that's what social media is built on, right? You know, with, within the day of her dying, you would see jokes about her charity work. You would see people saying, oh, she wasn't, she, she wasn't that great with her landmine activism.
1: That's probably true. Although I watch, Watching this, I really was thinking about how kind of similar it is to just how some events that have sort of public mourning associated with them or, or public celebration or, or whatever, how actually in some ways social media has exacerbated a lot of the things that uh, this documentary is complaining about.
0: What would be an event like that?
1: Well, just so quickly, I mean, one thing Hitchens points out that I think is particularly sinister is he, he talks about how the press in the week or two after Diana died ceased to refer to the crowds who were mourning her or the people mourning her as they or them, and started talking about we and us and things like that. So the press and kind of the official discourse around this had a pretense to be speaking for everybody. Uh, even though it it so clearly wasn't. And coming back to social media today, I just think about the fact that so many events now, good or bad, however one feels about them, you know, events of all sorts are kind of universalizable now because of social media. And so as a result, I feel like there is this kind of implicit pressure that you, not just that you have an opinion about them, not just that you read up on them, but that you actually kind of plant your flag in some part of the discourse around them. And obviously with social media, it kind of commodifies that process. Process. There's not kind of a market around takes. So if you come in at the right point when the line is just starting to dip, you know, after the peak, and you offer a contrarian take, you know, sometimes you can get in with like the next one. And all your oh, stocks man. can go shooting up, you know, until someone till somebody outflanks you. So what was the mass shooting when you know, somebody called it this was a few years ago, or, you know, somebody called it the, the worst mass shooting in history, you know, for like an hour, that was the No, that was the take. Uh, And then that got outflanked when people started saying things like, well, actually, the worst mass shooting in history was wounded knee and you know then you know their engagements shot up and you know it seems to me the process that Hitchens is kind of complaining about in this film it still happens it just happens uh, in real time and it's much more gamified and you kind of monitor it and there might be kind of shifts you know much more abrupt shifts in the discourse but I feel as if often there was almost the same sense of prescribed feeling around certain things and it, and it's maybe doesn't happen on the same scale as he's describing but I mean think about uh, the fact that you know when every celebrity I mean you and I have joked about this constantly, right? Like, you know, when like a minor celebrity dies now, uh, you know, somebody who you haven't heard about for decades, suddenly like everybody on your timeline has a sp- suspiciously well-remembered personal story that they're willing to offer about how, you know, this like minor character actor, uh, who's in like a handful of kind of, I don't know, kids movies from the 1980s or something like he gave me the courage to be weird or whatever it is. And the more of that stuff you see, and especially when it's coming from kind of official sources, like the more you feel that you have to kind of say something about it or that if you don't it's slightly weird
0: because you're a public figure so you don't want to be the queen not acknowledging Diana's death
1: everybody's a public figure so you have to be like the queen you've got to visit the village yeah. where there's been the desire you got to visit the site of the tragedy is it my
0: responsibility to acknowledge Robin Williams death like would the fans think I was insensitive for being <laughs> silent on Robin Williams death
1: that's right you have to modernize your personal brand by posting a photo of yourself standing up on your desk like at the end of Dead Poets <laughs> Society.
0: <laughs> um, Princess Diana was a volunteer member of a very controversial ruling dynasty uh, for a brief time. Um, and in that capacity, she deserved and, in fact, I think, necessitated uh, a lot of scrutiny. She was also someone who was an assiduous tabloid leaker. It is not the fault of any member of the journalistic profession that her driver went double the speed limit. Do you believe that the notion that the paparazzi somehow caused this is simply untrue? It's obviously, it's self-evidently untrue. Nobody can make a driver double the speed limit in in Paris. Well, I think the reason that we're talking about this documentary right now is because, as everyone knows, the monarchy is facing the greatest existential threat that it has faced since Diana's death. We all uh, saw, or at least heard of, the interview between Meghan Markle and the former Prince Harry and Oprah, where they leveled some alarming allegations against uh, life at Buckingham Palace turns out there may be a little bit of racism in there I believe at one point Prince Harry mentioned some colonial attitudes which I mean sh- shocker you know the place that invented
1: colonialism <laughs> I like I like to take after you know Prince Harry was sort of using all this like I don't know this language that's very in keeping with sort of I don't know the I don't want I don't want to trivialize this but you know it was pretty incredible and jarring to see this member of the House of Windsor this prince using all this language that just sounded sort of like it was a very like woke Silicon Valley adjacent, um, and and I loved all the takes after that were like, you know, this is what happens when men go to therapy. You know, it's like all this kind of language around Prince Harry and like microaggressions as if like that's the thing to focus on uh, when you're talking about a guy who like, you know, belongs to this dynasty like built on blood and the most racist 19th century imperialism. Give me a break. Well, funny you should mention uh, Silicon Valley
0: because that is Harry's next move. He's involved in a mental health and self-optimization company called Better Up. He's the chief impact officer. And I learned about that actually recently. Reading your new article for Jacobin. You see, I keep up on your work. It's called uh, The British Monarchy Will Not Survive Late Capitalism and Harry and Meghan Are Proof. And you build to a point that I want to ask you about here. You talk about how Harry and Meghan are kind of following a, a template that the Obamas have really perfected in recent years. Uh, combining, you know, uh, royal pageantry with a kind of secular success-win culture and like celebrity culture in- into this new package that's like somewhere between royalty and politics and celebrity, and you sort of conclude the argument saying in the twenty-first century, royalty will be a commodity like everything else, an especially lucrative lacquer in the era of personal brands and neoliberal selfhood, but a lacquer nonetheless. For the monarchy and its members, the choice will be between absorption by the seductions of moneyed personal autonomy or demotion to the status of kitsch tourist attraction, both options ultimately being subordinate to the dictates of exchange value rather than high symbol. So my question for you is, are they not already... A kitsch tourist attraction. Like how how are they turning into something different than what they were like in the nineties?
1: Right. So I think a good place to begin an answer is just to go back to the interview that they did, um, because you know it was obviously endlessly uh taked upon and uh, going through some of what was written about it, I was struck by you know there was I think there was a general consensus you know for obvious reasons this was very damaging to the institution of the monarchy. There was a real a really amusing subplot of this was all of these right-wing American writers... I don't know if you followed this, but all these right-wing American writers penning these very defensive takes about the monarchy, which I hope I don't need to explain like the irony of that and how kind of absurd that is... But, you know, everybody from royal sycophants and defenders to kind of royal skeptics and recognized, and, you know, obviously Buckingham Palace itself recognized that this was a represented a grave threat to the the reputation of the institution. But I kind of break from the consensus in what I think the ultimate nature of that damage is, or, or rather what, what the ultimate kind of cause of that damage is. Because I think a lot of uh, the writing focused on the specifics of the allegations, which are are very serious. I mean, I you know, this is, you know, was kind of a televised celebrity interview, but I I don't want to trivialize. I mean, I think one of the reasons why it was so resonant is because the things that Meghan Markle, in particular, was saying are things that a lot of people, perhaps of, of lesser means, can can identify with. And a lot of you know what she says in the interview is is genuinely quite ugly. I mean, this stuff about you know some member of the family raising concerns about the the skin color of their of their baby, things like that. You know, really, really ugly and grotesque stuff. And I think the general consensus was, you know, that despite the fact that these people are are literally royalty, you know, what they were saying did seem quite genuine and authentic. But notwithstanding that, um, I don't ultimately feel like that is the thing about this interview, this news event that most threatens the Windsor PR machine and and the institution of the monarchy, or at least its reputation, because the kind of subtext to all of this, right? And you've alluded to this already by talking about better up, where Harry is going to be the chief impact officer, and uh, yeah, he has this blog post uh, I was reading about it, and he's talking yeah he's talking about you know self optimization things like that. It's all this kind of Silicon Valley speak. The interview itself kind of takes place, and I think they say it's a, a friend. I Couldn't figure out if it's a friend of Oprah's or a friend of theirs, but they now share an area code with all of these kind of wealthy California celebrities and a lot of the kind of language they're using I think is very much of that milieu. And of course, they've just signed, you know, this is the Netflix deal, they have a a lucrative Spotify deal, they're going to do podcasting, or at least one of them is going to do podcasting, just like the Obamas. And of course, they're, you know, they're really launching themselves in the United States, right? Like so many, you know, non royal British celebrities have done over time, you know, and some of them have really been kind of swallowed up by American culture, just because it's so kind of large, and it, you know, almost kind of subsumes everything. And to me, all of this really poses a bigger threat, you know, at least in, in some sense, than anything that they actually uh, said or or detailed or alleged uh, during the interview. Because it really underscores the extent to which the monarchy is just kind of a type of celebrity that is almost just on equal footing now with other types of celebrity like how different is you know the trajectory that they seem to be on you know from you know the one that the obamas are on
0: or the kardashians for that matter
1: quite seriously it might be woker but i mean maybe maybe not even i don't i don't really know i'm i'm uh, i'm not an expert i wouldn't say it's woker it's just targeted
0: at a different demographic it's a more upscale brand than the kardashians but it's it's a brand nonetheless
1: and to kind of illustrate this you know i was thinking about uh this scene in children of men uh which uh, i revisited the beginning of children of men uh while i was writing this which when was the last time you saw children of men by the way
0: oh goodness probably 10 years ago honestly
1: we'll have to do it for the podcast it's an absolutely just an incredible film um, it's got this scene, which is referenced by Mark Fisher at the beginning of uh, of his great essay, Capitalist Realism. It's such an ominous scene. The, the soundtrack is this song by King Crimson in The Court of the Crimson King, which just has this incredible kind of angsty and ominous quality to it. But so the Clive Owen character, Theo, visits Battersea Power Station, which is this very iconic site in London. Uh, people will recognize it from the cover of uh, the Pink Floyd album, Animals. And in the world of the film, which is set in, 2027 in this kind of uh, dystopian london which is kind of uh, i don't know eerily familiar the power station uh you know which was this functioning coal fire power station for many years and was uh began to be decommissioned in the 70s and then was fully decommissioned in the 80s in the world of the film you can't really tell if it's a, it seems to be a government facility but then it's also just seems like a private art collection where kind of rich people live and the character who Theo is visiting, his apartment is just, or, or this collection or whatever the hell it is, you know, it's kind of a pastiche of, of both. You know, he's got all these incredible artistic treasures. Uh, You see Michelangelo's David. Like, literally, he has Michelangelo's David. Um, He's uh, in the dining area. He's got Picasso's Guernica. And then outside of the window of the dining area, you see the famous inflatable pig from the cover of Animals. Although uh, I looked and you can clearly tell that the pig has been moved. It's not in the same place. Like, it's not where it was on the cover of the album. It's been moved so that you can actually see it from from the window because... All these things are now equivalent. Like the process of commodification has flattened absolutely all of these things. And, you know, the way Fisher describes this, and it's just absolutely uh, inimitable style, you know, he says, the power of capitalist realism derives in part from the way that capitalism subsumes and consumes all of previous history. One effect of its system of equivalence, which can assign all cultural objects, whether religious iconography, pornography, or das Kapital, a monetary value. In the conversion of practices and rituals into merely aesthetic objects, the beliefs of previous cultures are objectively Ironized, transformed into artifacts. Capitalism is what is left when beliefs have collapsed at the level of ritual or symbolic elaboration, and all that is left is the consumer spectator trudging through the ruins and the relics. So in this incredible scene, you know, in the span of about 15 or 20 seconds, you see probably the most famous sculpture to come out of Florentine, Italy, Renaissance, Italy. You have uh, 70s prog rock because you're listening to Court of the Crimson King and you're also uh, you're inside of Battersea Power Station you've got this iconic uh, piece of artwork uh, from the Spanish Civil War. And then while they're eating dinner, you're also listening to Handel. And, you know, they're all just equivalent in this atmosphere of kind of very sterile, you know, it's just this antiseptic refurbished loft uh, that this character has. And, you know, interestingly, I looked it up and uh, because I thought, what, what, what is happening with Battersea Power Station um, in the present day? And it's like, Of course, it was bought in 2018 by a Malaysia-based sovereign wealth fund. The firm is called something like uh, the Promotal and National Board, and it's going to house, I think some of these are opening soon, luxury lofts, restaurants, retail spaces, also something called a chimney chimney lift attraction, because of course, uh, there has to be some kind of like, you know, Fisher uses the word ironized, like there has to be some kind of quasi-ironic uh, or sort of like burlesque, kitschy, like homage to what the original purpose of this building was. And the other thing that's going to be there is this 500,000 uh, square foot campus that's going to be used by Apple. <laughs> so, you know, Silicon Valley is everywhere, right? And so that's what Buckingham Palace is going to be soon. That is what Buckingham Palace, to some extent, is what it is going to be soon. That
0: seems preferable to me than what it is right now.
1: Well, yes. And I mean, you're right. The spirit of your question, I think, is correct in as much as you know, uh, and some people were kind of, uh, in in responding to the article after it was published, were kind of saying, well, hasn't this process happened already? I do write in the piece that, yes, you know, to some extent, this process is already firmly apace and has been for some time. Um, And of course, you know, the the monarchy has been stripped of its, I mean, its literal powers, its kind of non-symbolic powers, you know, its powers have been reined in and stripped away, uh, you know, in, in various ways for, I mean, 800 years, depending on where you begin the timeline. But what I'm saying is even the kind of residual symbolic power is being stripped away as well. If, if you can just leave and just be absorbed by like Silicon Valley, you know, that symbolic power begins to disappear as well. Uh, once the regal aura or whatever you want to call it, becomes something that people are literally exchanging and literally have exchanged for like Netflix deals and, and, and you know, podcasting. Uh, I don't know if this is true. But and it's very funny if it is. But one of the conditions with Harry's Netflix deal is that, like, they don't mention him in The Crown or something.
0: <laughs> Do you think there's something similar that has happened with the United States presidency, which, you know, through people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and, of course, Donald Trump has definitely blurred the line between politics and celebrity?
1: Yes, absolutely. And also has literally commodified the office, right? Uh, you know, I don't want to give him too much credit. But, you know, Harry Truman famously, you know, was listed in the phone book uh, after he was president. And he refused to take seats on corporate boards or things like that um, because he said, you know, I wouldn't even want there to be the appearance that there was a transactional relationship between my office and, and you know, some private or sectional interest. I can't remember quite how he put it, but that was the basic idea. And, you know, George H.W. Bush, I think he was the first one. It was basically just like, I'm going to be so I'm going to just sell myself to the highest bidder. I'm going to speak to banks. I'm going to speak to anybody who pays the money. And, you know, what did Hillary Clinton say when she was asked about all those obscene speaking fees? She just kind of shrugged. She said, well, it's what they were offering, (laughs) you know, Um, and the Obamas have really dialed this into into overdrive. The Clintons kind of did it with the Clinton Foundation. Um, But I mean, the Obamas, the Obamas are a lifestyle brand now. They've got
0: Netflix shows.
1: They're they're curating content. You could build your entire life around. You could read nothing but what they tell you to read, what they tell you to watch, uh, what they tell you to listen to. Um, Their playlists are kind of perfectly curated for a particular audience. They're, you know, they're sort of broad and inclusive while also being decidedly middle brow and kind of just ever so slightly refined. You know, Obama's own brand, which he's, you know, very carefully curated and and kind of, uh, you know, written up over the past few decades, you know, is kind of designed to be this this universal uh, identity. I think it was, uh, you know, someone once referred to him as an ingeniously crafted human cipher, and I really think that's accurate. So yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. And, and if we're talking about the desacralization of the monarchy, I mean, Donald Trump has certainly aided the process as well, just by being uh, so cartoonish and ridiculous. I mean, if, if that guy can have that job, it's, it's pretty hard to sustain the sort of e pluribus unum idea that the president somehow represents the whole of the nation.
0: Your article is premised on the idea that the monarchy won't survive or won't survive in the form that it currently does. But like, assuming that it sort of chooses this path, this Obama-inspired path, would that potentially make it more powerful?
1: I don't know. I mean, that's a complex question. So I I want to be very clear that I'm not saying the monarchy is going to literally disappear.
0: But something of it will
1: disappear and maybe
0: be replaced by something more powerful.
1: Right. And I mean, it's not to say that, I mean, the the order it represents, I mean, capitalism can reinscribe. Inequality in ways that may even be worse. It's not to say that uh, you know you could abolish the monarchy tomorrow, and you know I think that would be a very powerful thing to do, but it wouldn't instantly eliminate the you know class hierarchies in British society or anything like that. And, you know, to some extent, I'm, I'm just describing a process that has been underway for, for centuries, although I think we've reached a, a particularly important kind of juncture in it. British conservatism, I think, has always been particularly good in kind of the British aristocracy. You know, they've been very good at, at fusing tradition. You know, I think while other aristocracies have sort of in some ways become subordinate to bourgeois values and to kind of the bourgeois class, uh, Britain, I think, is, is to some extent an exception to that. I can't remember the name of the family. Uh, who's the sort of old patriarch in the movie Match Point, where, uh, you know, his wealth comes from the city. You know, he's, he's like a finance, he's like a day trader or some bullshit like that, or he, he you know, works in securities or it's, he's at a hedge fund. You know, it's it's new money, but then he's like grouse hunting and like could well get a seat in the House of Lords someday or whatever. Like, that's what I think of when I think of the British aristocracy, It's this fusion of, you know, kind of imagined tradition with the modernist dynamism of markets and, and things like that that. And so none of that is going away, absent a radical left government coming to power or a, or a social revolution or something like that. But I really think that the symbolic power of the monarchy is going to do, diminish and deteriorate. And uh, as you said, I mean, uh, this is to some extent already happened. I mean, one of the things when I know that I noticed uh, that was particularly striking when I was last in London, I guess in the fall of of 2019, is just how kitschy so much of it looks. I mean, it is you know it is it is an incredible place. I mean, central London is. Um, among other things, you know, it's got all these beautiful buildings and stuff. But it's also just the greatest concentration of wealth anywhere in Europe. I mean, just within a few city blocks. But also, so much of it is so incredibly kitschy. Have you ever seen the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace? I, mean, I have indeed, yeah. It just looks like, you know, it's twee cosplay. It's, it's like uh, going to Disneyland. It's Disneyland, right. The th- one of the things I find very funny is all these, like, quote unquote, British pubs that have like Union Jacks hanging outside of them. And like, if you were to go inside, which uh, I did not, you know, it's just like the worst breed of American tourist imaginable, who is like themselves getting to cosplay as like an authentic Brit, you know, it's also kitschy. And it is like this sort of imperial nostalgia, this kind of reverence for, you know, this idealized, you know, Victorian Britain or something like that. That it, yeah, it's just literally being uh, sold in these kind of cheap shops, and is itself just like a part of the tourism industry. Anyways, it's funny, you know, having said all this, you know, I do have a certain there is like some part of me, I guess, just by virtue of my background, where I do feel this kind of twinge of like, I don't know, nostalgia is the wrong word. I mean, uh, nationalism is also the wrong word. It's too strong a word. But like, I do feel kind of British in some in some way, you know, by virtue of all my family ties there and stuff. It's a very complex relationship. Because like, like I was saying, when I was talking about how watching The Crown is weird for me, it's like watching The Crown, I just sympathize with all the people who were trying to undo the social order like work against the, the you know the social order the crown represents and i certainly don't feel british when i see like images of buckingham palace or the changing of the guards or anything like that but i think i told you uh for my birthday i watched master and commander you know which is uh i don't know one of my favorite films just like a pure delight and watching that you know it's a very jingoistic kind of movie and and in the scene where russell crowe says let fly and they you know they fool the french vessel into thinking they're a whaling ship and and then they ambush it and hoist the union jack i would be lying if i didn't feel like a, a twinge of something i'm mildly embarrassed ab- about um but there's a there's a scene in that movie where they're preparing for this ambush on the french frigate and they're rehearsing their broadsides but they're not doing them fast enough and uh russell crowe is saying lads that's not good enough we need to fire two broadsides to her one." You want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? No! You want to call that
0: raggedy-ass Napoleon your king?
1: No! You want
0: your children to sing the Marseilles? No!
1: Mr. Moore, Mr. Pullein, stop and battery! Yeah! And despite the sort of weird and slightly embarrassing twinge of sentiment for queen and country that the film arouses in me, I always watch that scene and kind of just think, well, yeah, I, I, I kind of would. of the Crimson